everybody. Matt Smith here with The Film Find. Uh, Going to do a special news episode today. Uh, Adam has the week off. He's um, moving currently. So just a little extended episode of the news to make up for the fact that we don't have a full episode of the regular podcast this week. Uh, I'm here with my buddy Alston. Hey, uh, everybody. And uh, we're going to do a rundown of some of the news, and then uh, a little later we'll talk about the new FX show, The Bridge, which we literally just stopped watching uh, the premiere episode of. Uh, I'm going to start out with some box office, just like normal. Um, opening up really strong, Despicable Me 2 uh, took in a five-day haul of $143 million, um, which, Alston, you said yeah, the it's third? Yes, third uh, largest opening weekend for an animated feature. That's, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, um, especially for a sequel. Yeah, so uh, coming in in the number two spot, um, I'm actually really surprised that it's in the number two spot because it opened to abysmally low numbers. Uh, Disney's The Lone Ranger uh, took in a five-day haul of $48.7 million. Um, it still managed to make number two for the weekend, though, because uh, in its second week of release, Major hit the heat only took in twenty four point eight million. Um, just to give you the total rundown now. Despicable Me two in the top spot. Lone Ranger in two, third the heat, fourth Monsters University, with a total haul of two hundred sixteen million, which is also quite impressive. Uh, World War Z in number five, number six White House Down. Uh, still doesn't look like that movie is going to make its uh, money back at least domestically. Uh, number seven, Man of Steel. Number eight, and this is weird, uh, Kevin Hart's new stand-up, yeah, I Let heard, Me Explain, I opened up in number that. eight with a five-day haul of $17.4 million, uh, which is a lot of money for a movie of this type. Yeah. Um, and then and in the ninth spot, This Is The End, continues to roll on by in its fourth week of release with $85.7 million total. Uh, and... In the tenth spot, the magician movie Now You See Me, uh, with a total take for the weekend of two point eight five, and a total overall take in the sixth week of one hundred and ten million. So that's your weekend box office for the Fourth of July weekend. Um, I'm not certain that last week's "Hey, all you veterans, come and bring a friend to see White House Down for free" <laughs> event. Uh, went so well as far as that movie making money, but maybe maybe people did actually get into the movie. Who knows? Um, I, I did want to talk about Despicable Me 2 just a little bit because you brought up an interesting article that you read, Austin. You want to just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's on uh, cartoonbrew.com, which is an, obviously an animation-centric um, uh, website, and uh, Amita Meaty uh, is the current... Uh, sole runner of that um, after Jerry Beck left and people have things to say about Amina Meaty but he, he wrote an interesting article about um, voice acting um, by celebrities in animated features and how specifically Al Pacino had been um, attached to Despicable Me Too up until six weeks ago um, when he pulled out for creative differences the the reason why everyone pulls out of any movie ever. Um, and uh, they replaced him with Benjamin Bratt, um, who is an established actor. People know him, but he's no Al Pacino. And uh, it's 
obviously doing extremely well. And the point of the article was to point out the fact that really um, there is very little correlation between the success of a film of an animated film and the celebrity of the voice actors involved. Um, the, the article specifically mentioned um, how Robin Williams, when doing the voice of, Ala of uh, the genie in Aladdin, um, was paid scale about a hundred um, thousand, which a lot of money for us, but not really for them. Um, and uh, how over the last couple decades, um, celebrities have been getting larger and larger salaries for doing voiceover work. And uh, they mentioned um, Tom uh, Hanks getting $15 million to do the voice of Woody in Toy Story 3, um, which, you know, is stretching out these budgets for already expensive films. And um, while you could argue that for Toy Story 3, you can't really replace Tom Hanks. Right. Um, it's still unnecessary amount of expenditure. I, I agree with his sentiment in the article that it, people don't go to see these films for the voice actors, um, celebrity. They go to see it for the quality of the animation, the quality of the story, if it just looks entertaining. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, and... and you know, Despicable Me in general, I think, is an interesting case for that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, increasingly you just have celebrities who show up and do their own voices mm -hmm. for for their work. And uh, and most of the time they're not even doing a voice. Like, yeah. they don't put on an accent. They don't yeah. do anything. It's just, hey, that's, uh, you know, Cameron Diaz's voice. Right. And, and to a good extent, I understand there is uh, something appealing about a voice that you recognize, just like a face that you recognize. Right. Um, but you know, so like Despicable Me too. I think the big voice that anyone would care about in that is probably Steve Carell, of course. Um, who is doing voice work? It's not, he's not yeah. just playing Steve Carell. No, no, he's got that. Um, that uh, he's got an accent. Strange, it's a little higher European than yeah. accent, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but uh, you know, like I, I don't think that that actually matters beyond the fact that he was already in the first. Exactly. Thing, you know. Um, so it's an interesting case, uh, and, 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 and Despicable Me and its sequel have gotten very positive reviews mm -hmm. for being both, like, gorgeously animated, and they are. They're very mm -hmm. well animated. Cheaply, too. Uh, this budget w uh, for this animated film was low by, like, major release right. standards. It was something like 73 or $78 million. And that'll keep happening. Um, and, uh, you know, it looks great. And uh, it's funny. The The first one's really funny, mm -hmm. and that's what people cared about. And it wasn't funny in a, like, constant pop culture reference Shrek way. Right. There was which some of that in got. there, which is inevitable, right? I right. Mean, that happened with Disney in the early 90s. Yeah. And even even before that, you know, with stuff like Oliver and Company and things like that. Yeah, but I mean... slight pop culture references, e but just Easily the, the pinnacle is... The uh, over-the-top... Aladdin. I mean... Yes. Um, and, and because Robin Williams himself. didn't yeah. even have scripted yeah, exactly. lines, you yeah. know, he, he kind of showed up and riffed and then they just right. animated his riffs, basically. Precisely. Um... Anyway, that's uh, that's a really interesting article. I'll have to check it out. Um, glad you brought it to our attention. Um, I did want to mention a couple of really brief things before getting into like what I we actually just discovered this too while watching the bridge. But uh, this this will be our actual big story. But before that, uh, I want to talk just a little bit. Um, George Lucas 
Uh, this this is in the news uh, today. I saw it on IMDb actually, um, which means it's either yesterday or the day before his news. But <laughs> right. but uh, George Lucas finally gave Star Trek credit for opening the door to the popularity of Star Wars. Um, Fair enough. Kind of putting to rest the rumors or the battles you right. know, that, that have happened over the years of like which one's better. It's I mean, like it's not really the better thing, but would there be Star Wars without Star Trek? Right. Lucas acknowledges, uh, no, no, there wouldn't be. But um, his his exact quote uh, was, uh, Star Trek softened up the entertainment mm-hmm. arena so Star Wars could come along and stand on its shoulders. Right. Popularity-wise. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, before that, uh, like, science fiction was, like, kid stuff. Right, or you know? or it was almost an antiquated form. You know, H.G. Yeah. Wells, and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, was, it wasn't meant... Well, with the exception, I'd say, of a few things, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, you know, there, there were very few other options that you can point... I can't even think of any um, early television... Um, or films that were particularly popular um, before uh, Star Trek that were pure sci-fi, not right. horror. Um. Yeah, horror-inflected or, you know, the, Star Wars brought that, like, serialized, childish wonder back to it. But of like, course. But, like, Star Trek opened up the gates for, st- for, for science fiction to be taken seriously by adults. Yes, well, and, and, and the simple fact that you can see it, see the relations between, you know, alien species and alien governments as being metaphors and reflective of our own. I mean, that was easily, you know, Gene Roddenberry is the reason why sci-fi took that, um, at least sci-fi in, in film and, and um, television took that right. route. Yeah. So just a little interesting thing there. I thought that that was a, like actually a nice gesture t- towards his forebears uh, and particularly Star Trek, which is something he hasn't acknowledged before, right? Right. Like he he can't, he will acknowledge the serials and the Flash right. Gordons Kurosawa, and the things like that, right? But uh, specifically American sci-fi mm-hmm. um, and kind of that uh, like greater world picture kind of science fiction. Well, and and interestingly, I I feel that um, we're learning more and more about Gene Roddenberry and how much he actually has contributed to the. I mean, actively, he contributed to the changing social dynamics in our society. I mean, I recently read George Takei talking about how he um, knew that he was gay um, when they were doing the series and um, that he gave him support um, throughout uh, as a as a result. And, you know, now George Takei is George Takei. I mean, and yeah. really, like, I mean... He's one of the largest... Uh, he has one of the largest Facebook followers. Yeah, easily. Well, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he's the... They, they call him, like, the king of the internet or something silly like that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's not just that he has that many followers. It's that that many followers, like, constantly reshare whatever yeah, he's posting. I'm one of them. And I'm one of them, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um couple other really quick things. Do you Have you watched New Girl? Do you know the show on, yeah. on Fox? You've seen yeah. it before? I haven't watched the newest season. Okay, so, but you've seen the one that's probably on Netflix or whatever, yes. right? Okay. Um, so the pilot of that show uh, was actually not Winston. Winston mm-hmm. was not a character, right? Um, so the, there was a character who was just a coach um, who, who was played by Damon Wayans Jr., Hmm. who was actually a cast member on Happy Endings. And then he did this pilot for Fox because they weren't sure that Happy Endings was going to get renewed. And it did. So he went and like did that show, and they mm-hmm. came up with a replacement character who was like his 
brother or cousin, I forget exactly who right. it was, but he took over the like rental right. on the apartment because he came back home from whatever he was doing. So at least like that makes sense, whatever. You can explain it in a logical way like that, even right. how, how convoluted it is. Right. Um, but what's interesting is, and, and I don't know this for a fact, but I believe that Happy Endings has been canceled. Mm -hmm. um finally i mean it died one of those slow deaths of like there were very dedicated viewers that kept it alive but for the last like season and a half it just they kept changing the night and they yeah. couldn't like land the target audience they wanted um so i think it's gotten canceled but anyway he's uh damon wayans jr is returning to new girl for a major arc this next mm -hmm. season which is just interesting to see and how like see how that like dynamic's going to play with the show yeah as it is because basically he and winston were serving the same character purpose right uh in the pilot in the regular season so just to see him come back into the fold and maybe maybe it might, it might be a way for for winston to get a little more play oh, in this season as well, well. they're gonna have to they can't um, they can't ignore their relationship or the fact that he is essentially a replacement character. I right. mean, what, what, I mean, obviously the best move for them would be to create a, you know, con or a conflict between them and, and the roles that they play. At least, at least that's the, from my meta perspective, I'd like to see that. Um, I, a funny thing about that show, uh, is how it is one in, uh, in a lineage of, uh, mini shows where, Inexplicably, people have extremely low-paying jobs and these amazing apartments in, in major yeah. cities. Like. Well, and this one, this one is explained as Schmidt being very well off okay, at right, the very right, least. Right, like, right. like the, I don't, he has a I, good job, I right. can't say that like he would necessarily, even in real life, no matter what his background was, like his family or his job, would be able to sustain the four of them living there right. indefinitely. But. You know, it is, it is always that way. Yeah. I mean, there's the friends thing, right? Yeah, like exactly. They have these amazing apartments, and how do they have them? Uh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's part of the whole, you know, fantasy of, of TV that we right. all we all love and buy into. Right. Well, like, and in, in Seinfeld, Jerry has this great apartment in New York, and he's a fucking stand-up comic. Right, he's, not, know, he's like, not actually Jerry yeah, he's, Seinfeld he's not in real Jerry life. Seinfeld in <laughs> yeah. real life. He's Jerry Seinfeld, the stand-up comic, right. who, like, hangs out in a coffee shop most of the time. <laughs> right. You know, like, in a diner, you know? Um, okay. Uh, one other quick thing. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I do want to talk about this in the future, so I'm going to mention it now. Um, Netflix has, debu has debuted its... Uh, third new show this year in 2013 this week uh the new uh show from Jinji cohen who created weeds mm -hmm. um right. orange is the new black uh premiered this week um i haven't read very much about it but i will be talking about it in the future so if anybody's uh going to be watching that uh just we'll we'll deal with it at some point but it it's weird that netflix is able to keep pumping these out and they seem to be all getting at least if not the best reviews, they're getting the audiences, right? So right. you had you had Eli Roth producing Hemlock Grove, mm -hmm. which kind of got critically panned, but also it didn't matter because people watched it people and watched loved it. it. And uh, the same kind of happened with Arrested Development, where it came out and there were some some like slightly mixed reviews. Right. There, I, I read some pretty some pretty biting, pretty bad ones. Yeah, yeah. reviews um, which I didn't actually end up agreeing with, but right. Um, and, and in fact, uh, like Arrested Development, actually, um, I'll have to pull this up and get Adam to post it to the to the blog section. But uh, there's there's actually a really good 
article that came of this in, of all things, I think it was Entertainment Weekly, um, mm-hmm. which was called mm-hmm. The Case Against Binge Watching. Mm-hmm. And it was about how Netflix releasing all the episodes of Arrested Development, like, undercut how the show was structured had it been shown on a weekly basis. So that by watching it, con- like, all the way through, mm-hmm. you missed out on, like, how the structure sets you up for pacing yourself. Maybe. And taking your time with it. And it was just an interesting article. I, you can you can say that there are cases either way, but but uh, it is interesting to, to, to try and, like, suss that point out. Right. I mean, I, I think that it's fair to say that that show was had its ups and downs when it came to the structure, the tone, things mm-hmm. like that. But I think that if you consider all the factors, the fact that they're covering seven years, the fact yes. that, you know, everybody knows what happened to the series, and this is a very self-aware series, so mm-hmm. you have to kind of address it through the structure and through the storyline, the fact that this show dipped off the air for seven years. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that they they did as good a job as anyone could expect and and it I think ultimately succeeds, and I'm looking forward to next season. I'm also looking forward to seeing if this structure maintains itself in the next season, or if they revert to a degree back to something more familiar from the original series because they have they've caught everybody up, and you know they have the the actors in line. They don't have to kind of deal with all these unknown variables. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be. Yeah, I don't know. I'm really interested in how all this is going to pan out in the long run, like with the streaming and the and the new series. I think, I think they're all successful though because like when Netflix has the algorithms, right? right? They have right. it all. I, I still don't understand exactly how you make money um, off of this, other than assuming that millions of people are going to subscribe to uh, Netflix that that don't already have a subscription for these shows. Now. Fair enough. You're not paying licensing um, fees to people, right. um, which yeah, is, there's the contracts right. are strictly between show creators and right. and Netflix. Um, it's almost like it operates on a model similar to how HBO functions, right? Um, except like HBO still releases its numbers to yeah. people. Well, and know? they've released DVDs and and there's all these well, kind of and that's what's interesting too. Netflix is doing that. They are. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I just saw this the other day when I was walking through uh, Target. Um, House of Cards is on DVD. That's smart. That's so, the only way I can see them in, in the future making money off getting of, more people to and actually get getting it. people in the like interested. Because I mean, unless you're willing to sit there at a friend's house who has Netflix and watch the whole you right. know, season of something, then you're, you're not going to do it. Yeah. But if you can go to the store, even if you're in a place like we are that's lucky to have a place like Video Drone, right? Like that still has an independent right. video uh, rental shop, like you can go there and pick it up and watch it. Mm-hmm. And then if you like it enough and you say, well, I just spent $12 right. renting the four discs of this from, right. from this place, why don't I just spend $10 a month and get Netflix? Uh, well, especially when, you know, it's, I think it's going to become all the, the, all the content providers are going to start being more like HBO and Netflix, and it's going to become this competition of who has the most content that I like, and if I can afford, you know, to get both Netflix and, you know, whatever, uh, uh, Hulu Plus or whatever other paid program right. or pay uh, system, then I will. 
So uh, just a little bit more TV news, and this is actually going to lead into our discussion of The Bridge. But um, while we were watching, actually, this episode, the premiere of The Bridge, an interesting commercial came on that I had not seen um, for... Uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia's mm-hmm. new season. It's like the sixth or seventh season that's going to be starting. And um, the show's moving. It's not going to be on FX because FX is launching a new channel mm-hmm. on TV. It's not an online channel. It's a new network uh, called FXX, which, stupid name. Very stupid. They must have put all their creative uh, abilities into actually making the shows for the network because they didn't do anything for the title of the so, network. So, um... Uh, basically, the idea between the split is that FXX is specifically targeting the 18 to 34 demographic. It's the adults fun factor. Um, and so they're going to have It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in the league, kind of as the headline shows for that, while returning shows like Justified, American Horror Story, and The Bridge, they're hoping will anchor down the like slightly order, you know, like it'll still hit that 18 to 34 right. spot, but it is also a demographic that skews a little older into the forties and fifties. At the very least, it's a, it's a broader spectrum. Yes. Um, so they're, they're moving, like I said, it's always sunny in Philadelphia in the league over there. Um, they have, they've stopped anger management for the time being. They're relaunching it, but they're like retooling it. It's actually very successful for the network, but it's not quite hitting the numbers that they want. So they're retooling the formula a little bit. Right. Um, and they haven't at this point decided they're going to keep going on FX as of right now, but they don't know exactly how that's going to, um, like affect that demographic because it skews, one way or the other, apparently, depending on just, like, who's on the show with him. So, like, last <laughs> season when his dad had a stint, Martin Sheen, right. um, on the show, uh, like, older viewers tuned in. But the year before, when it was, like, him and, uh, oh, I forget the girl that was on the show the first season. In any case, like, it was, like, a younger skewing audience mm-hmm. um, riding his, like, tiger blood wave. Yeah, I mean, I, that guy, somehow he's, you know, had a resurgence in his career, and yet he looks like he's, like, you know, stumbling down the rabbit hole. Like, I mean, he looks worn out. Uh, yeah. I, he's getting old, but, you know. So, um, the other the other weird thing that I, in looking all this up after we were like, what the hell is the, this FXX thing? I had no clue about this. Me either. FX, uh has a new limited series coming out that they just bought from the Coen brothers and Noah Hawley. Wow. Based on Fargo. Wow. So I don't know how they're attacked. I'm going to try to bring this up and see what's going on. They they tried this before. After Fargo came out, there was an option to make a, um, a TV series out of it. Yes. And I don't remember what happened, but obviously it didn't, you know, go into effect. So, um, so apparently, um, the, so the Coens are going to be the executive producers and, uh, Noah, Noah Hawley, who, um, let's see, who, who was the creator of my generation, which was a short lived show, but apparently well received. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be an adaptation of the story, which could be very interesting to like yeah. expand that universe just a little more, like what's going on with the 
investigation with the criminals. It'll be interesting to see how that how that ends up happening, right? Um, and to what extent the Coens end up being involved in that style is inflected in the show. I you know they they are so um, not just prolific but so um, intimately involved in every aspect of the um, the films that they make that. I, I would be very surprised if they would ever put their name on something that they didn't fully endorse. Right. Um, I mean, they're not going to just, they're not trying to make money off of this. Yeah. You know, they're. Yeah, no, they always wholeheartedly believe in what they're doing. Sometimes it's not as successful. Right. Um, well, you end up with stuff like the Lady Killers. Yes. Um, but, you know, at least you can see them in it and you know that they, they were there the whole way, right? Right. Well, and, you, and you can see it in, in other films that they've produced but weren't um, directly uh, or, or had some hand in but weren't directly, you know, involved in the direction, writing, etc. Right. Um, okay. So in our last, like, five or six minutes here, uh, let's just talk about The Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um this was an adaptation. I'm not going to go into the background too much. Um, like, honestly, I haven't even read that much because I wanted to go into the show cold. And I went in completely cold. Um, so it's adapted from a, from a Scandinavian, I believe Swedish, uh, crime drama. Um, the basic premise uh, for the American adaptation is that there's a murder on the Bridge of the Americas, uh, which is at the border between Juarez and El Paso. Mm-hmm. And... The body is discovered crossing the border itself right on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a female detective from El Paso and a male detective from Juarez end up sucked into this case. Right. Um, as they discover more and more details like the body actually being constructed from two separate bodies that have been cut in half. One an American, one an, a Mexican. Um, so you've got two murders that need to be solved on each side of the border. And uh, it goes from there. Um, there is a twist. They haven't gotten to it yet, which I think is weird. Like, they haven't explained it, although, right. although what I've read has, like mentions it very prominently. Uh, so the, the female detective is played by Dan- Diane Kruger, who uh, is a very popular film actress these days, actually. Um, a lot of people remember her from Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, she has Asperger's. Right, the and character. This, and, yeah, the, the character has Asperger's. And um, this leads to kind of an abrasive personality. Oh, absolutely. Which is, which is interesting for television. Yes. I well, I, I mean, they're, they're obviously looking at the long, um, long picture when it comes to her uh, personality. I think that they obviously intentionally... Um, shied away from directly attributing her attitude and, and quirkiness to um, Asperger's, but I actually assumed that was the case because of... <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a point when Alston looked at me, he's like, what the hell, is she autistic or something? Yeah, and, and, and sure yeah. enough, she has autism spectrum disorder, which is right. now what Asperger's is, and all yeah, other in. autisms fall into. So, uh, what, what did you think about this episode overall, Alston? I liked it. Um, I I think that they actually, specifically her personality, um, while abrasive and jarring, um, in part because you're so used to, within an episode, especially a premiere episode of a TV show, you find out the flaws of the main characters, and then you find out the things that really make them likable, and even, even the... If it's a anti-hero, there's still something in them 
that you like. Yeah. Um, whereas they really did. I mean, there's there's very little to like about this person, and they didn't explicitly give her an out by saying she has Asperger's and you know she can't help it and things like that. Um, though, if you know anything about um, Asperger's or um, autism spectrum disorder, then you know that you know she can't help it. Yeah. And that, that, you know. It's gonna it it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, uh, I I think they'll have to get to it very soon, only for for no other reason. Audiences who maybe don't read right. anything about the shows they're watching, which right. which there are people who do that. Um, but the, you know, she's not totally unlikable. She no. has that major trait with with American TV detectives, and really, I guess any any TV detective in that. Um, they really genuinely do care about what's happened, right? Precisely. Like they, they care about solving the crime. Right. And you can see this in, you know, all the way back from, you know, early crime fiction, the Raymond Chandler, the Black Mask era. Yeah. Uh, through AMC's The Killing, mm-hmm. uh, the character on there, uh, Sarah Linden. Um, you know, people tend to not like her. Uh, but she still like actually gives a shit about solving the crime. Well, and one, one good and and to build off of that, one uh, positive thing I can say about the uh, character dynamics is that they've established that both the Mexican detective and her as the American detective deeply care about yes. this, and that neither one of them can see because they don't understand each other at this point. Neither one of them can see fully. Um, how they how much they care she right. she's very skeptical she thinks that as as a lot of characters seem to um that mexican police are generally corrupt don't care would rather just not deal with um their job than to actually solve a crime and he is a very affable and likable character to begin with and her abrasive attitude um is while he accepts it, he obviously is put off by it. Right. Um, so they, they do a good job of, of establishing mm-hmm. that everyone's going for the same goal, even though none of them are very good at working together. Right. And they also do a very good job of that other big trope, which is that, like, everyone other than the main people working the case, like, the maybe the, the not, not just the detectives, but, you know, certainly also her, like, sergeant, right? Right. Uh, like cares, but you know, there's this trope in in American crime fiction that aside from the main people who are actually doing the work on the case, uh, who got stuck with the body, right? Uh, like everyone else is this inept, right? Uh, either they don't care to do the job properly or thoroughly, or they're like just really bad, and they right. do that on both sides of the border here. With uh, you know, uh, Detective Ruiz goes to um his captain and says, Hey, I want to be involved in this investigation in El Paso. And he's, you know, the captain basically just doesn't have any interest in it. Right. And and it's very Um, abundantly clear that the captain himself is extremely corrupt and is involved with, uh, cartels. cartels. Um, and then you get that moment towards the end of the episode where they go and find the second half of the, of the victims bought one of the victims bodies. And there's of course the County, sheriff's department uh who right. didn't even notice that the that the woman's id was missing right right, right. Well, even though he's like everything's by the book 
Right. Uh, yeah. And immediately, it, his like ability to do his job is undercut. And 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 ultimately, you know, this is all a very much a social commentary, and you know, it it's it plays very well into this kind of misunderstanding that happens, and and almost undoubtedly happens in real life um, between. Uh, uh, law enforcement on either side of the border and right. even interjurisdictional misunderstandings where, you know, county versus sh- uh, uh, city versus mm-hmm. feds, etc. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I think it's very well handled. Um, so overall, I think I liked the show quite a bit. I mean, this is kind of my, right up my alley. I like crime fiction and procedurals in general, um, even some of the lesser ones. Um, but I think this was kind of exceptional. Like the acting's top notch. Definitely. I think the writing's really strong. I hope it like gets a little better. I right. Could, I could stand it to be a little better. It's it's a um, little bit heavy handed. Um, to be honest, the the writing it it's melodramatic. Um, yes. And and there, there's there's a lack of subtlety to it that um, really when you're dealing with such you know intense subject matter you you want a little bit of subtlety to to pull away from you know the kind of onslaught of right of you know and and, it, and that is a very difficult thing to do Definitely. like right to, Especially to write TV. this to write this direct social commentary mm-hmm. into something very subtly uh especially when the entire premise is in and of itself like this graphic match of right of what's going on on either side of the u.s mexican border um, so I'm, I'm interested. I want to keep watching yeah. it. And, uh, I think this is one to watch folks. So. I, I agree. Um, I, I'm looking forward to the next episode yeah. and they seem to be setting it up for, um, really a, a kind of overarching, um, epi- or a season long, or at least half a season or something like that. Several episode long, um, uh, arc regarding, um, the, the specific set of murders um, happening in uh, Juarez. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right, guys, that's it for the film find this week. Uh, next week, Adam and I will be back with uh, probably a really long show. We're going to go really in depth and in, uh, exactly what happened with Disney's The Lone Ranger. And we're also going to talk about Pacific Rim, which opens up this Friday. Can't wait. Um, the new film from Guillermo del Toro, Robots uh, Fighting Giant Monsters. What's not to want to see about this? Um, So for Alston Jones and Adam Portress, this is Matt Smith, and we'll see you next week. (laughs)